Marini's Media. Totally Football Show, reporting on a weekend with fewer matches than your dad on Tinder. As Storm Kira blew through the weekend's fixtures, still today we chat Sheffield United storming the top four, another good day for the Blues, Mariapa blowing it, and so much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Bauer. Hello, listener. Uh, up extra early this week because of the weather, and we're joined, I'm delighted to say, by Frida Fagerland from Sport Bladded. Mm, yes, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> also here, Michael Cox from The Athletic. Hi, James. And Tom Williams out of ESPN and the uh, very popular football book, Do You Speak Football? Hello, James. Hello to you all. Hello, and uh, lovely to have you uh, here today to discuss a weekend that proved a little bit more of a mid-season players break than expected. Storm Kira uh, seeing many fixtures called off the entire Women's Super League programme and, of course, Man City West Ham in the Premier League. Ed Quoth Raven says, is there a link between this apocalyptic weather and Christian Benteke scoring? I mean, they, that was that, and then you laughed because I, kind of I, I enjoyed that, and I laughed when I saw it on Twitter. Oh, I right, saw okay. it on Twitter and yeah. laughed. I don't want to laugh. I don't want to insult Ed Quoth the Raven by fake laughing. Okay, but yeah, it does, another... it does make you think. There is something. There is something a bit weird about Christian Mantecchi scoring goals. So right. maybe there's something in it. Certainly, uh, there's something quite weird about the way mm. Jordan Pickford behaved. Well, I was going to say that Jordan Pickford had a hand in it, but yes. he actually didn't have any hands in it, which <laughs> is why the, the goal went in. <laughs> nice. Also tweeting about the weather, Michael Cox, who says, "Match off the full caps lock." He says, "What other phrases in football have to be written in all caps?" Yeah, there were which... some funny responses to that. What did you get? Keep off the grass. I thought was a really good entry. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, seven, if it's on the old Vidi printer, was always spelled out in capital letters so that the number isn't confused with one. Right. Oh, yeah, fair. Um, Evening standard football headlines. Yes. The word breaking on Twitter is always in capitals. Right. Um, Done deal. Would that be one? Done deal, I believe Adam, Adam Hurry contributed that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, he would know. Yeah. Right. Very nice. Frida, it's not like we don't have a lot of things to talk about today. We're just <laughs> having a quick look at Michael's Twitter responses. But um, uh, very good. Uh, we'll talk about wind very, very shortly. But uh, let's begin with the three games that did actually take place. Only three, but luckily if you if you did have to pick three fixtures to have a weekend out of, you'd probably go for Brighton, Watford, Everton Palace and Sheffield United, Bournemouth, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, the Brighton-Watford game, uh, which I were at were especially um, interesting, obviously, right. regarding you know the league table and what's going on down there. Right, well, you and Michael both went down to Farmer, to the Amex, so let's start off then by hearing about that. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Marpe, right across the face... Brighton 1, Watford 1. Decore opening the scoring and then that extraordinary own goal from Adrian Mariapa in the 78th minute. Were, were you sitting anywhere near this? Not no, really. right in the middle, actually. Okay. So were you able to see exactly what had prompted Mariapa to put through his own net in such a firm fashion? Well, it was one of those where you were really scrambling to see the replay because it was almost like you 
couldn't really believe what you'd just seen. You think there must have been a deflection or, you know, someone getting in front of his eye line or something. But no, it was just a massive miscalculation. Right. One of those where you can't really work out what he was trying to do. He didn't need to really divert the ball. And if he was going to, then I don't know why he went with kind of that part of his foot. It was a very strange goal. And to be honest, aside from one chance through Moy, mm. Brighton had had so much possession but hadn't been overwhelmingly threatening. So... It really was, a, I mean, a massive error that could, you know, could really cost Watford dear come the end of the campaign. Right. These two teams both in and around the relegation struggle. So uh, a very important game down at that end of the table. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I, I guess we, we all assumed that Brighton was going to have a lot of depossession while Watford was going to focus on being more disciplined and, um, you know, focusing on the defence and so on. Um and, and I mean, they they struggled a lot, Brighton, during the first half. Um, I mean, they, they had some some troubles in in the final third. I would say um, they didn't feel that um, strong whenever they, you know, the ball came near the goal. But at the same time, I mean, Graham Potter, he he was trying to to change things during the second half, and I have to give him that. that he he's not afraid of actually, you know, substitute players, and you know, I, I was sitting there almost thinking, how do the players even know where to be at this moment? Because he brought off uh, fullbacks and put on, uh, you know, attacking players, and um, they were basically all all over the place. But in the end, that was actually what made them you know get that point because um even though it was an own goal by mariapa um it was still mupe and Jahan Bach who were behind it so um it turned out well in the end but yeah uh, you're still not sure about brighton mm. i mean I, I i can't say that graham potter has found his starting lineup or even his formation it seems like he changes his mind every week right nice to get a point but a 1-1 at home with Watford's not not the strongest testament to your form it was actually I think the most telling thing about this is one of those things you can only retell in the stadium but the noise at full time was just really flat and really dejected and I think both sets of supporters were really gutted with the point it was a game that I think both felt they really needed to win and even though it wasn't a real end-to-end thriller the technical quality wasn't great I really just enjoyed being there because I felt I feel like I've watched quite a lot of Premier League matches this season involving the top sides for Man City, for example. If they win or lose or draw, they're going to end up in the same position. And this was a game that was, you know, to use the cliche, it felt like a six-pointer. Um, it felt really important. And I think the relegation battle almost felt like the start of the kind of relegation run. Really? Yeah. Okay. For Watford, you think about what, an incredible impact Nigel Pearson had as soon as he came in and that fantastic run of wins they went on. Then had five without a win in all competitions and that early momentum seems to have blown itself out and they now find themselves, what are they, second from bottom? And that must be quite dispiriting, both for the, the players and the fans, because you've you look like you've turned a corner right. and they clearly had turned a corner. The, the football was unrecognisable compared to what it had been previously and yet here we are a few weeks on and they've not really moved forward a bit and yeah, I think to have to have got that close to victory and then to to throw it away in the manner they did and to now have two weeks to stew on it, it's Ooh, just yeah. another sort of, you know, kicking the teeth. Because this is the third game in a row that they've dropped points from a winning position. What, why do they keep doing that? Is it coincidence? Well, I think in the second half they dropped quite deep. I mean, Pearson afterwards said that he didn't think his side used the ball well enough and kind of relieved the pressure and got a little bit higher up the pitch. And I think that probably is true, but 
as I say, I, I really wasn't convinced that Brighton were going to get back into it. They, you know, Watford defended well. They didn't really seem that troubled by what Brighton were throwing at them. I was impressed by uh, Craig Cathcart. I thought I had a very good game after a little bit of a difficult won the weekend before and I know you know as Tom says I think results have dipped a little bit but I was still quite impressed by their performance I thought that uh, Dini and Ducouro worked really well to press from the front they were putting Brighton in difficult situations when Brighton were trying to play out from the back which is something they're massively committed to and I think generally do very well but I think in this game there were some poor passes and actually even the goal came from a bit of a you know, a passing move that I think Moy conceded possession and there was a quick turnover. So I, I have been impressed by Watford's organisation. And, you know, I've said throughout the campaign or more when when Javi Grassi was there, I, I think it's actually a really good squad with a good set of players and quite a lot of players who can just do something, you know, pull a rabbit from the hat, you know, like Ducore did. He's been really good in this more advanced position. Daily Fair, not his best game, but I always kind of fancied he was going to get some joy against uh, Shilotto, who didn't have a, a very good game. So I was just, I came away quite impressed by the quality oh, nice. of, t- of two sides that are fighting relegation. And I think that the actually the battle for relegation or the battle against relegation places this year is quite strong. I think probably one quite good team will go down. It could be one of these two. At the moment, obviously Norwich are very much in trouble. There are seven points from safety, but then you've got five clubs all within three points of each other fighting to avoid the remaining two relegation spots. Brighton, Bournemouth, Aston Villa, West Ham and Watford. Meantime, the whole going to Brighton to the seaside experience, Frida, how did you find that? Oh, amazing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I absolutely loved the sea. What was the best bit? Um, Probably the sun, but I mean, (laughs) that hasn't a lot to do with with Brighton, I guess, but... Yeah, okay. the, the weather was lovely. Do you enjoy Brighton specifically? Quite. What was your favourite venue to go to amongst kind of English footballing destinations? Oh wow! I have to say that I really enjoy going to Griffin Park. Uh, I don't know if that's has something to do with the fact that you know the ground isn't going to be there like the, the next season. Right. Um, but I find that really a, a really nice venue to okay. go to. Nice. Brighton Beach is a good one to visit in the winter because in the summer when you want to sort of enjoy being on the beach, you, mm. I find the pebbles quite annoying. It's hard <laughs> to get comfortable on a pebbled beach, but in the winter, <laughs> chances are you're not going to be sitting there in your swimming costume, so it doesn't really matter because you keep your shoes on. Practical. All right, a game took place on Sunday in the Premier League. It was Sheffield United against Bournemouth. What happened there? We'll be discovering after this. Join Ruby Walsh, Paddy Power, Tom Nugent and a whole host of great guests each week on Paddy Power's new racing podcast, From the Horse's Mouth. Tune in for analysis, interviews and a bit of crack from the greatest trio since the Bee Gees. Ha, 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 ha. From the Horse's Mouth, from the Horse's Mouth. Ha, ha, yeah. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Watford and Brighton's fellow strugglers Bournemouth making the trip to Bramall Lane and returning empty-handed after being done 2-1. Tom. Yeah, Bournemouth going into the game on the back of those two wins over Brighton and Villa, which you felt was going to potentially spark 
the upturn in their form that we've been waiting for over the last few months, mm. coinciding with the fact they're getting a lot of important players back from injury. I don't think any team in the Premier League has been hit by injuries as hard as Bournemouth this season. Not and they're Newcastle. all Newcastle, actually, perhaps Newcastle. Okay, I mean Newcastle, Bournemouth, probably similar. Um, but yeah, lots of key players have been out. They're all starting to come back in dribs and drabs. Had this slight upturn in form, and you you felt that positivity in the way that they really went at Sheffield United. I, I think it's quite rare to see Sheffield United cork hole like that, particularly at Bramall Lane, um, where their form is, is generally pretty solid. Um, Bournemouth go ahead in the thirteenth minute, and yeah, fully deserved. Um, you know, they, they'd had a few chances before that, um, but then Sheffield United kind of cleared their heads sort of took control of the game um, and you you felt the winner was coming from about sort of an hour to play um, and obviously what will be of particular satisfaction to Chris Wilder will be the fact that it was the two substitutes that combined right. Lise Mousset and John Lundstrom it's the sixth time that a Sheffield United sub has scored this season yeah so there lot. you go so mm-hmm. you know doing something right with their substitutions um, and yeah just to sort of bring it back to Bournemouth having had that little upturn their next three are Burnley away Chelsea at home, Liverpool away, um, and we're now we are getting close to you know the business end of the season. So I, th- I think that that will have felt like quite a, a bitter one to take um, mm. losing late on, even if it, it was a goal that felt like it was coming. Okay, Sander Burge is it Sander Burge? Berg Berger Berger because his mum is Swedish. Yeah. Right. Do you know she played basketball for Sweden? Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> what else do you know about Sander Berger? Uh, I know that he's tall, but that's yeah. <laughs> down to his parents, I guess, because mm. his dad is was also a, a basketball player. Was he? Yeah, but he's obviously Norwegian, um, so I don't right. know a lot about him. But okay. But yeah, um, Berger obviously has a lot of pressure on his shoulders since he was pretty expensive, but um, he's starting off promising. Um, and I have to say, I'm I'm quite impressed by how strong he looks, like with the ball, and how comfortable he looks as well. Um, so I think I think it's going to do well. well it feels quite on brand, Sheffield United signing like a big strapping Norwegian mm-hmm. midfielder. And if you look at the makeup of their squad, there is something very kind of like mid '90s Premier League about it. It's mainly English players. There's a few Irishmen. They've got a French striker. Like a big Norwegian feels like the obvious next player to bring in um, so I think yeah it, purely in a kind of from a branding perspective What uh, apart from billowing blue zones with McEwen's Liger all over them uh, the, the logo rather mm-hmm. than say the drink uh, what what else would they be missing to be the classic mid 90s Premier League side a, a big Scottish centre back uh-huh. um, who's like you know nose is smeared halfway across his face in a kind of Colin Hendry mode right, yeah. would be one okay um, they might be a, a Champions League side I mean, it's it's an outside shot, but stranger things have happened, even even recently. But they are now, what, two points behind Chelsea? Chelsea, of course, uh, as much the Premier League now has a wither game in hand. But certainly Europa League looks very much within their grasp. Yeah, quite possibly. And I hope they, I hope they really go for it because uh, they've never played in European competition before. So that would be fantastic. I thought the goals were quite interesting in different ways. The equaliser from Billy Sharp because it's his second goal of the season. His first goal of the season was in the reverse fixture on the opening day of the season and was almost identical, a kind of far post poachers go after a scramble to set piece. And the second one, because it was scored by Lundstrom and he was the player who was left out because uh, Berger's come into the side. And uh, I thought you could kind of tell from his celebration, Lundstrom, it was a kind of, 
It was a defiant celebration as if he was really pumped up. He knew that he'd lost his place in the side. You can see why, because that's the natural position for Berger. But he's obviously uh, chipped in with some very important goals this season, Lundstrom, and uh, maybe has played his way into the eleven for when they reconvene in two weeks' time. What, what did you make of Chris Wilder's afternoon? It's very interesting. He got involved in that uh, scrap with Sermon. I think Sermon was trying to get the ball and one of Wilder's assistants was keeping it. And then there was a little confrontation that prompted me to wonder whether VAR can get involved to review these incidents involving managers. Someone on Twitter responded saying that uh, David Wagner, um, who we know very well, was wrongly dismissed after VAR incident in uh, in midweek in the German Cup. Right. Um, so was he then brought back? I, I believe it was then overturned. Okay. Oh, sorry, or maybe vice versa. He was sent away from the dugouts and then VAR right. uh, brought him back. So what did but, Chris uh, do exactly? It was Wilder? just a bit of a shoving match with, okay. uh, with him. It wasn't anything too major, but I'm very much against VAR, but just seeing, you know, it's, I think Wilder would be a great candidate to be sent off by VAR. I think he'd be maybe the most annoyed of all the managers in the Premier League. To be at, sent off by VAR? Yeah, absolutely. Is it if there was like tunnel cam, so you could see him like storming back to the changing room with the face of thunder? Especially right. if the ref went over and looked at the monitor just right beside Wilder. It would just be fantastic drama. As it turned out, it was quite entertaining, even without that. Uh, we, we wanted some goals, we got some goals, and Sheffield United maintain their position on the fringes of the Champions League places. Remarkable stuff. Bournemouth in that group, as we mentioned, battling relegation two points away from the drop. The other game uh, that was scheduled for Sunday was, of course, Man City against another relegation struggler, West Ham. But that was postponed on account of, well, a, a danger to life, I think, was the rather dramatic warning by the... The, uh, the authorities... Well, I had a football match postponed myself In similar circumstances. Similar, obviously, when you've got large numbers of fans um, potentially travelling large distances for the fixture, you've got to think about their safety as well. So, right. um, you know, fully behind the authorities on this one. Yeah, no, obviously the public safety is the primary concern for everyone, but I was a bit disappointed not to see uh, well-paid footballers battling with improbable weather conditions. DC Morgan probably feels the same way, but DC Morgan tweets... Uh, Best wind-assisted goal the panel has ever seen. Is that a big thing in Sweden, Frida? I can't say it is. Is it not? Do you not get strong winds a lot in Sweden? Um, well, we we should do, especially in in the southern parts. Okay. Uh, of is that is it windier the southern part? Oh yes, really? I'm from there. It's it's always windy. So I, I don't even think that this is a storm. It's like oh, really? everyday life. Okay, because uh, ESPN actually did a very handily did a nice kind of pull together of some of the more famous ones, including, and this is really controversial, Roberto Carlos's free kick mm, yeah, in 97 against France. He said, Roberto Carlos once said something about the wind having... Uh, uh, he said it was going impact. out and it blew back Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd, want to, I'd want to have that doubly confirmed by him. It doesn't look like it's... It doesn't, does it? It has a traje- trajectory. Well, I mean, it, mm. it very much does look like it's been blown <laughs> by the wind. No, but like the, the ball doesn't... There aren't any sort of unnatural, like sudden kind of like gusty movements. Right. It no, kind of follows, it follows a quite parabola. a gentle arc. It's just a consistent yeah. wind. There's a, there's a cracking one on that I looked at that same article of a goalkeeper taking a goal kick yeah. then, that then blows back straight over right, his head. Right, this is Asaf Mendy, mm. who and luckily it's a about training match essentially Maccabi Haifa against Dinamo Kiev but very much classic he was it up in the air and in almost exactly the same trajectory it just blows diagonally back mm. down into his, his net but my favourite it wasn't actually on there is uh, Stephen Warnock for Leeds against Yeovil Warnock's teaser goes all the way in the wind of change has blown through Hewish Park and Leeds United have turned it around 
I'm not sure. It's quite possible that he calculated wind shear into his into his kick, but it's a free kick, and he blasts it miles wide of the goal, quite high, and the wind just picks it up and does it almost like a dog leg, mm. just like 90-degree turn and whaps it into the into the net. Well, the, the thing about that goal kick one is it shouldn't have counted. That should be a corner to the opposition. Because? You can't score an own goal from a goal kick. Well, there you go. I actually looked up the... Because, um, you know... We had so, uh, <laughs> so little to talk about. I was looking at recent Premier League games that have been delayed or postponed, I should say, by the weather. Right. There haven't been many in recent years because, of course, the pitches are so good these days and they do a lot of preparation. Right. But a recent one, which I completely forgot about, but I think three or four seasons ago there was a Sunderland game, home game, that was postponed because of a waterlogged pitch. Hmm. It was on the second day of the season. Mm. Can you believe that? I once went to a game at the Etihad, or rather I didn't go to a game at the Etihad at about the same time of year, which was postponed because of because of rain and it was yeah sort of late august and it had been there'd been a heat wave in other parts of the uk but manchester again sort of very on brand had this uh, biblical deluge and the game was postponed and i had only packed enough i mean this is very much like first world problems i'd only packed enough clothing for one overnight stay right. so i had to go out the following day and buy some underpants All right and here you are saying we had so little to talk about, Michael. <laughs> I know. I regret that. Remarkable. <laughs> anyway, the weekend's other match came Saturday lunchtime at Goodison Park, and that, thankfully, is coming up next. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Match week 26 got underway Saturday lunchtime at Goodison Park. Clear skies overhead, Tom. And Everton were taking Crystal Palace in a clash, excitingly, of the two oldest managers in the Premier League. Carlo Ancelotti and Roy Hodgson. Curiously, the first ever managerial meeting of these two came, Michael, in October 1996. Can you tell me which teams were involved? Uh, presumably Hodgson's Inter and Ancelotti would have been at Parma. He was. And it was 3-1 at San Siro. Nice. Right, same scoreline, of course, as, as this, but except Ancelotti finally got his long-awaited revenge. <laughs> that Inter Parma, though, uh, I w- went back and and enjoyed the highlights again because it uh, it featured two goals from Ivan Bam Bam Zamorano, nice. Madonna's favourite footballer. One of them assisted by a certain Paul Ince. Ah. Yeah, and the other inter goal came from another player whose name began with Z, Zanetti. He didn't he didn't score many, but he scored that. Uh, just a lineup of talent for this clash. I mean, it was kind of classic mid nineties City. Yeah, you had as I mentioned, Paul Ince was there, Hernan Crespo for Parma, and they also had Gianfranco Zola at the time. Zanetti for Inter, Jorkaev was there, just kind of taking set pieces and stuff. Beppi Bergam is still playing. Ricobra, I'm pretty sure I spotted in there. Paluka in goal, all great fun. Anyway, so yeah, we should... A level of talent to what was on show at Goodison Park yesterday. Yeah, so further, actually, you know... More parallels. Probably in 24 years' time, we'll be looking back on this one and saying that day at Goodison Park and reeling off Bernard Sigurdsson and other... And Benteke. Benteke, who scored? Tell us about Benteke's goal, Tom. So, this is early in the second half. Palace are a goal down. But they actually made quite a decent fist of it. Um, it was in the balance for quite a while. And I, I think Ancelotti admitted as much after the game. So, their goal came from a 1-2 between Benteke and Zaha. Really nice bit of um, football from Zaha, who sort of turns, opens himself out, kind of draws the players towards him and then threads a pass into space. Benteke takes a touch on the edge of the box that he doesn't really need to take, which makes the angle a lot worse than it would have been. Doesn't really connect properly with his shot, um, but Jordan Pickford somehow d- dives over it. Um, Christian Mateke's first Crystal Palace goal since April 2019. Mm. 
which says everything about his uh, goal scoring problems. Um, and yeah, I think at that point, yeah, the game felt like it, it could go either way. But then within, I think, what, seven minutes or so, Richarlison goes down the other end, drives into the box and, and puts Everton ahead. That was a, I mean, that was a fine goal from Richarlison. Mm, yes, I, not one that I suspect Gary Cahill will be in any hurry to see again, given right. the ease with which Richarlison drifts past him. But actually, no, in, in fairness to, um, I, was, I was trying to think of the um, the save that Pickford made from Benteke. Yeah. I think that came after Richarlison's goal. So it was it was, it was the third goal, really, that was the clincher for Everton, and that was the one from right Calvert at the end Lewin. from Calvert-Lewin. Right. So, yeah, another, another poor defeat for... Palace, three defeats in a row, seven uh, league games without a win, uh, mm-hmm. but they're still they've still got a little gap um, between them and, and the bottom three. Uh, and Everton's improved form under Carlo Ancelotti continues, five games unbeaten now in the league, and closing in on the top four. Incredibly, it's extraordinary. They've gone from the bottom three on December the fourth to seventh. As we uh, as we sit here on uh, February the the ninth, as has been widely reported, only Liverpool have picked up more points than Everton since Ancelotti took charge. How much? Well, here's the question from uh, Jason Rumpen. Hello, Jason. Is Carlo Ancelotti actually doing a good job at Everton, or is it Duncan Ferguson, the puppet master? What's behind this run of success, or is it just one of these things that we're seeing from various clubs in the Premier League this season, where you go on a good run and you shoot up the table? I think Ferguson deserves a lot of credit in that we saw at Arsenal what can happen when you don't make the right interim uh, managerial appointment, which is not to criticise Freddie Ljungberg because clearly he inherited a very difficult situation, but he didn't have any discernible impact on Arsenal's results. And by the time that Arteta came in, you couldn't say that the ground had been prepared for him. Whereas Duncan Ferguson, albeit over a shorter period of time, had such a positive effect on Everton, changed the shape. He was the one who started playing with Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin up front, which is which Ancelotti has continued with. So I think, I think Ferguson deserves a bit of credit for sort of you know, shaking up the players. We all remember those stats from Ferguson's first game the, when they beat Chelsea and it was more tackles than Everton had produced in a fixture since 1967 or something. Um, and I think that meant that that made it a bit easier for Ancelotti because there was already a little bit of momentum. There'd already been a change to the dynamic. And I think what Ancelotti's done very successfully is just sort of built on that. Um, I don't think he's changed all that much. Compared well, to the yeah, team, I'm curious actually to get Michael's take as well because today there's one or two kind of op-eds about how has Carlo Ancelotti turned it around? And I dutifully read them, but they tend to consist of telling Theo Walcott he can score goals and, and that kind of thing and, <laughs> and taking the pressure off. What, what, can you point to any concrete things that Carlo has done? Well, I mean, I, I think the organisation without the Bulls has been very good. I've been right. impressed by the de- the defensive shape, especially when you've got Walcott and, and Bernard, who are two very attack-minded wingers. I think they've tucked in and done their jobs very well. It seems to me like they've probably worked very hard on getting... Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison to combine on the training ground because I think their interplay has been excellent for that uh, Richarlison goal and in albeit in a set-piece goal it was Richarlison's header who you know created the goal for um, for Calvert-Lewin with the rebound I've liked the way that the wide players have got into goal-scoring positions sorry if that's replicating the analysis you heard that you didn't like James but I think that uh, you know the first goal yesterday with one winger crossing the ball I think it's so important whatever system you're playing, wide player on the opposite flank comes in to provide a goal threat. And that's something I don't think Bernard really... To me, he feels like a natural winger. He wants to be on the outside, fullbacks, ducking and diving and sending in crosses, but he was getting to goal-scoring positions as well. And I think just the general kind of compactness of the side, which again, as Tom said, you know, that was really obvious in uh, in the Ferguson period in that win over Chelsea. Just they were so difficult to play through. So, 
yeah, I, I think there's various little factors that have, have improved the side. And also I think that, you know, a lot of people, myself included, were maybe slightly um, sceptical of Ancelotti's appointment, but it seems, you know... Just, had, just before you go on, and what made you sceptical about him? Well, because I think when you look at his past couple of jobs, particularly at Bayern and then right. at Napoli, really things hadn't gone very well and there were certain, you know, suggestions that his training sessions were not particularly intense and not particularly... weren't really working the players hard enough. But I think that, you know, from what I've heard, the Everton players were basically just a little bit uninspired by Silva. And I think when... Without wanting to sound patronising, when you're playing for a club like Everton and then suddenly Ancelotti comes in, who's been managing Real Madrid and Milan and Napoli and these kind of sides, you do think, hang on, this is a guy, you know, players do tend to respect managers and players who have won things. And I think he does seem to have brought a kind of order and purpose to Everton's players much as kind of tactically improved them. Is this success for real? The next four games will see them away at Arsenal, home to Man United, away at Chelsea and then home to Liverpool. Uh, which represents quite a quite a test. What do you think, Frida? Yeah, we'll see. Um, I have to say, I'm I'm especially impressed by how well they're doing at the moment. Um, since I still have this Liverpool game fresh in memory uh, in the <laughs> FA Cup, oh, right. which was absolutely dreadful, and that was like this moment when I thought to myself that oh wow this is how it's going to go down with Ancelotti he's not he's not going to be able to turn this around but he actually has so that makes me think that they're actually going to do well throughout the season uh, and also the fact that he's been able to you know everyone keep talking about Calvert-Lewin suddenly maybe going to the Euros and uh, Richardson uh, I mean I, I don't know I don't think there was much in, in you know the rumours about Barca you know one him and so on but still it says something about Richarlison being you know having improved right. since he came although there is a, a kind of a strand of logic in it given that he's good in the air and good at he's a, a threat at set pieces I think this is the thinking here and then not a club that necessarily has those kind of weapons Richarlison you mean yeah yeah I mean as Frida says it seems like the rumor of that 85 million pound bid or whatever was right. nonsense but the interest in Barcelona I don't think is nonsense I think that is a long-standing thing you know, there's been suggestions they're monitoring him in previous transfer windows and might well go in for him at some point in the future. I think, like you say, he's got those qualities to play up front. He can also play on from the left very effectively, which I think isn't something that Barcelona have been able to rely upon this year, maybe haven't been able to rely upon since the departure of Neymar. Right. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that happens in, in future. And I think we should also say that there is probably an element of regression to the mean in Everton's form because um, when we were doing our season previews we cited Everton as one of the clubs liable to break into the top six they're now seventh just off the top four which is where we predicted them to be at the start of the season so there's probably an element of that in it as well I think okay but um I mean the sorry to kind of go to a negative thing but I, I think there really have to be questions asked about Jordan Pickford's form now I mean that was that was an error that isn't uncharacteristic of him this season and certainly not in recent weeks. I mean, just this year alone, there was New Year's Day, there was a Gabriel Jesus goal he got his hand on and should have stopped. Both goals that Florian Lejeune scored as Everton collapsed, you know, in a 2-2 draw against Newcastle. He's making a lot of errors in different situations. It's not just he's got, you know, previously I thought he was maybe slightly weak on long-range shots because he concedes a lot of free kicks, a lot of long shots, but reflexes haven't looked so good. I don't think his kicking's been as good as it used to. And maybe more so than two years ago, there is now competition for the England number one shirt. You know, Dean Henderson, I think, has been excellent this season. Nick Pope's had a decent campaign. Southgate, I think, generally has tried to judge players 
on their form for the national side rather than their club side, which I think often makes sense because they're playing in different systems, they're asked to do different things. But with a goalkeeper, I'm not really sure that applies. And with a goalkeeper who's made so many mistakes this season, I do wonder. You know, I think the thing might sa- the thing that might save them is we, we only have two games really before the before you want to have your 11 in place for the tournament. Um, and those other two goalkeepers are relatively inexperienced and not accustomed to playing, you know, with the pressure that comes of playing for England. But I think Pickford's form really since the World Cup has been very poor. Well, Ryan Clayton questions whether it might not just be his England places at threat. He's saying, uh, how far can Don Carlo take Everton? Where do you see him strengthening? First move Pickford out of the door. Is that where they most need an upgrade, do you think? Um from what I, what I heard, I mean, Ancelotti has been speaking very highly of Pickford. Obviously, I mean, he he um, he might not tell what he's thinking, mm. uh, but I do think that if they're going to strengthen the team, they will probably strengthen the midfield at the moment. Um, I do think that both Sigurdsson and Schneiderlin are a bit, I don't know about them. Um, so that's probably in like the first spots that they would look at. Okay. Yeah, just to go back to Pickford, I mean, he didn't have oodles of international experience prior to the World Cup. I mean, by the end of 2017, he'd only won one cap, um, which shows that, you know, it is possible to go into a tournament with a goalkeeper who who doesn't have bags and bags of experience, albeit you need to give him a few runouts in the friendlies that precede the tournament. And I, I think the next England uh, friendlies that, that Michael mentioned against Italy and Denmark in March will be interesting because, I mean, you know, the consensus now in the country as a whole is that Jordan Pickford is not the best English goalkeeper around. And you wonder whether Southgate will use one of those games to try someone out, potentially with a view to taking over from Pickford as number one. Fair enough. Palace, meantime, have some season-defining fixtures uh, when they return from their mid-season players break. Newcastle, Brighton, Watford and Bournemouth. So it's essentially... The teams that are just below them struggling away in that scrap to avoid the drop. All right. Uh, We've got loads of other Premier League news to come and also a massive match from the Championship after this. Restricted fixture list in the Premier League this weekend, but meanwhile in the Championship, Nottingham Forest took on Leeds and emerged 2-0 winners. Huge game. Nick Miller was watching and, crucially, is on the line now to tell us what he saw. Hi, Nick. Hello, James. Hi. You're a Forest fan, aren't you? I am, yes. How how big was this game for you? Uh, It was extremely big. I mean, obviously, the, the... the two kind of fallen giants, the two kind of sad big clubs of the championship playing each other. There's always a little extra kind of needle when Forest and Leeds play each other, which is partly because of that, but partly because of a, a game last season, I think it was, when um, when Leeds got a point through a goal that perhaps wasn't a goal. Uh, it was a handball, so there's always a little bit more fun involved with that. But obviously in this case, it was a huge game in that it was just another couple of points reeling um, leads in really for Forest. Now obviously only a point behind them in second when they were 11 I think it was about 10 games ago. So yes it was it was absolutely massive. In all these years Nick there's always been something that's gone wrong for Forest. Are you now at the point where you think you might just get away with it this year or are you waiting for the other shoe to drop? Uh, as far as I'm concerned the uh, season may, may as well be over. I don't know why they're uh, 
playing the rest of it. It's, it's an absolute certainty the Forest going up. No, I mean, of course, the, the, you know, 21 years away from the Premier League and all the kind of interesting variety of ways that Forest have um, managed to mess things up, then, you know, to, you're, it's tempting fate to think that um, anything other than calamity is just around the corner. But it's the best season that Forest have had in, I think, 10 years. If nothing else, they're going to... Uh, unless something absolutely extraordinary happens in the last few weeks, they're going to finish and end the season with the same manager for the first time since I think it's 2010-11. Right. Um, well, which... Sabri Lamushi was asked about this afterwards, where, where they were asking about uh, Forest targets, and he said, "Yeah, my only target is to uh, finish the season, to actually be here at the end of the season." The last time a Forest manager did that was 12 years ago. Yeah, and the the last man to do that was Billy Davis, which we don't like to really think about too much in Nottingham. Ending the season with the same manager is a kind as as uh, Lamushi said is a kind of minor thing, but it it does sort of point to a, a certain sense of stability throughout the club and kind of in the team as well. I think last night was the sort of um, kind of performance that Lamushi has been trying to get for for the, for the whole season. Quite solid defensively. A few good counter attacks, uh, a lot kind of funneled through Joe Lolly, who's um, was brilliant last season. Not quite, not been quite so good this season, but it's kind of fanning his form again. Um, and it also kind of pointed to a, a little bit more optimism for the last part of the season because previously Forest were quite reliant on Lewis Graben for goals. They've now got a few more attacking options, and of course, one of those scored the second goal, Tyler Walker, yesterday. Right, indeed, Des Walker's son, uh, uniquely. Uh, as for Leeds, very quick comment on them. That's now four defeats in their last five. They were top of the championship, 11 points clear of third, 10 games ago. They're now just one ahead of Forest. The implosion continues. It does. I mean, of course, the obvious thing to say is that this is just what happens in every um, Bielsa season. The reason that people usually point to that is that he just runs his teams ragged and they're not able to kind of cope with the physical demands in the second half of the season. It's interesting that um, uh, Michael's athletic colleague, Phil Hay, wrote something um, this weekend about how it might be a more of a kind of psychological issue, perhaps. Um, they've also got a few injuries, like Calvin Phillips, who's incredibly important for them, um, wasn't playing yesterday. The, the, their sort of main centre forward, Patrick Bamford, is not a particularly... Um, Particularly clinical striker, although they they have signed Augustin, who I think we you talked about on the uh, on the Euro part a couple of weeks ago. Um, but he doesn't seem to be starting at the moment. They had a little bit of a hodgepodge team yesterday, so you know the, the, there are kind of reasons for other than the kind of obvious, you know, this is what happens to be also teams in the second half of the season thing. But it doesn't look great for them. They're kind of in amongst it now. West Brom won earlier on on Sunday. And I suspect that their wobble is just a bit of a wobble and they will stretch clear. But then the, there's going to be a, a bun fight of about five, six other clubs for the last remaining automatic spot. Yep, 2-0 win. Leeds failing to score for the fourth time in their last five matches. Yikes. Sammy Amiobi's opening the scoring for Forrest. Lewis Graben with a magnificent chance to take them 2-0 up. But in the end, it was in the 94th minute. Tyler Walker, as Nick mentioned... Des Walker's son. Tom, coincidentally, you wrote a piece this week about how tough or otherwise it is to grow up the son of a footballing legend. Yes, I did. What was your conclusion? Is it tough or not? 
I mean, it's it's tough in certain ways in that when a player like Tyler Walker comes through and he is the son of a famous footballer, you automatically just talk about him in relation to his dad because, you know, that's that's an interesting bit of context. But if you are that footballer mm. and everyone only ever talks about you in that way, it's, it will be a little bit annoying and there's nothing you can do to, to control it. And I, I spoke to Sam Besant, son of Dave. Right, yeah. Um, Jack Barnby, son of Nick, Nick and Devontae right, Cole, yeah. son of Andy Cole. And they all had various they'd had various different experiences of this and I felt like Sam Besant who is now in his early 30s playing non-league football I think he'd accepted fairly early on in his career that he was not going to emulate his dad and he was you know quite sort of happy talking about it and there were times when it had been a bit annoying but whatever uh, Nick Barnby's son Jack uh, has just signed for Phoenix Rising uh, in the States um, playing in the USL Championship okay. loving life in the States in the sunshine playing lots of golf and he sort of said why why should I be put out by people talking about my dad he had a great career and his great career enabled me and my family to have a great life and okay I might not live up to him as a player but you know I, I can't I can't um, there's no reason why I should find that annoying so Sort of thing, Um, and I think Devontae Cole he came through the youth ranks at at Man City with a lot of players who are now playing top level football elsewhere. Um, And you know, I think he's the one who's kind of got closer to having a career comparable to his dad's. And I kind of felt like he was still grappling with it a little bit and seemed to take the comparisons not not to heart more, but but he he seemed to be more kind of forthright in saying that you know it, it, it does get a bit annoying. And but at the same time, he sort of had the perspective to say there's nothing I can do about it, and it's actually it's up to other people not to do that and I kind of felt a little bit guilty because I was because I was ringing him up to talk about what it's like to have a famous dad Um, but yeah so he has just signed for Doncaster Rovers Mm -hmm. Um, he's sort of he's moved around a bit he was at Motherwell the first half of this season scored a few goals for them um, and he's now at Doncaster Rovers hoping to help them get promoted to the championship and then ultimately get back to the championship himself and then from there who knows right there's a rich crop currently of of footballing, is it, would you say Sion's? Sion's? Yeah, I'm never sure how to pronounce that. Well, I don't think I've ever actually Daniel said Daniel Maldini coming on at the end of the... Yanis uh, Hadji scoring on his debut yeah. for Rangers. The, the Turams, the Zidans. Justin Cliver, the Zidans. Justin Cliver. Timothy Ware. Timothy Ware, another one. Yeah. And of course, uh, in a year or two, we'll have Messi and Ronaldo's sons coming through because they're, they're looking pretty excited. When you look, though, at, at uh, sons who've actually been better than their, their dads, I, I mean, I would put... Paolo Maldini in there. I mean, Cesare Maldini had an illustrious career, but Paolo, I think, I think everyone would accept another level. Who else? Frank it's Lampard quite... is he better than? Oh yeah, yeah Miles. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah, there aren't yeah. many though. I mean, those are the two obvious ones. No, I think. I think there's loads. I think they're just more difficult to think of. You know, Pepe Reina's dad was a right. you know, international. Forland's dad, mm. Veron's dad. I, I think we Michael Owen. You know, Michael Owen's dad played. Trezeguet's a couple, better know. than his dad actually. Not yeah. the current Trezeguet. I just think that they don't come to mind as right. as quickly. Right. Yeah, that's the, a good point. The one I'm of course excited to see. I'm sure we all are. Is Cunaguero's uh, son. Yeah. Uh, who, with Maradona as his grandpa. My favourite is a uh, Vladimir Vice. Okay. Formerly of Rangers, purely because his dad Vladimir Vice. Right. Uh, also played for Slovakia, and his granddad, also Vladimir Weiss, nice. played for Czechoslovakia. So there's three of them with exactly the same name, which is quite confusing on Wikipedia. Wow. Imagine if you had a whole family, then you could be a Weiss squad. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but it, it makes sense. I mean, if you grow up with a parent that's professional in, in a sport, right. you're obviously going to adapt certain things that that parent do. Um, you know, things like uh, training and maybe even food and sleep and yep. so on. So I, I definitely th- see that's a connection. 
by the way, if you want to feel really old, Sean Wright Phillips' son is now a footballer and plays for City. Mm. He's called DiMaggio. How old, how old is he? Well, I don't know that. But he's a kid. Late teens. It's amazing well, how like yeah. the realisation you're getting old just continues to mm. just kind of get you. You have Jake Forstakaski. No, but I want to be. Who plays for Charlton. He is, uh, as you might be able to work out from his name, the son of Darren Kasky and the stepson of Nicky Forster, both of whom were relatively prominent players in the 1990s. Mm. So he had two influences on his uh, football career. Seems to have worked out quite nicely for him. Brilliant. All right, we've got some massive stories to bring you in a second or two. First this... On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Those massive stories in full, Frida. Man United striker Odia Nogalu is going to miss the club's training camp in Spain because they're worried he might not be allowed back in the country if he leaves to go to Spain on account of the fact that he was recently playing in China. Yeah. It's a bit of a worry, isn't that, it? That seemed weird. How, mm. how did he even get to the UK? Well, I, th- I think the thing is that at the moment you can fly in, even if you've recently been working in China. But what Man United are concerned about is that if uh, entry uh, requirements are uh, restrictions are, are tightened, that that could mean that their big January move for Igalu could, you know, ultimately not see him actually playing anything for him. Uh, other news, Jurgen Klopp has won the Manager of the Month, uh, Premier League Manager of the Month for January. That makes him the first ever Premier League manager to win it five times in one season. In fact, he's won five of the six possible Manager of the Month awards in this campaign. The only month he didn't win it for was October, which was a terrible month for Liverpool. They beat Leicester and Spurs and only drew at Old Trafford. Who did win it in October? I wonder if you can guess. Or, or do you know? Wilder? Nope was manager of the month for... Frank Lampard. It was Frank Lampard, Frida. Nice. They won three out of three. Seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Oh, uh, speaking of congratulations for people at Liverpool, Mo Salah and Jordan Henderson's partners both gave birth at the weekend. Nine months and one day in Jordan Henderson's case, certainly, after that 4-0 win over Barcelona at Anfield. Yeah, but I actually think that's fake news because I know when Harry Maguire, when his daughter, I think, was born, maybe mm-hmm. it was son, I don't know, he, when his kid was born, um, that was actually exactly nine months after the England's quarterfinal win in the World Cup. And I know that one woman tried to explain to me that that's not how it works. You, you can't count, you know, exactly nine months. After a certain date? No, apparently not. Don't ask me how how you're supposed to count. But right. Who was that quarterfinal win against? Sweden. Oh, yeah. Right. But I'm curious, this, but the, the, the gestation period of, of, of a footballer's partner isn't, isn't necessarily nine months. <laughs> For any partner. Any yeah. partner. Yeah. Uh, it's something about weeks and trimesters. I, I don't know, really. Okay. I, I'm not really into... All right. Ask, uh, ask Phil Neville. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, or not. Uh, Premier League clubs, meanwhile, have voted to move the end of the summer transfer window back in line with other European leagues. 2018, you'll recall, they felt that wrapping up the transfers before the season actually got underway was the better way to go. So they moved the deadline to the start of the season. But the rest of Europe continued with the end of August, uh, which led to a little bit of a 
weird situation with players able to move across to Europe but nobody able to buy them in the Premier League. So this is really good news, eh, Michael? No, I'm really disappointed about it. I know it's a relatively minor thing, but I'm genuinely really disappointed about it. And I understand kind of why the Premier League clubs have objected to this because it basically was costing them money and it was making their life more difficult. But I think on a sporting level, Mm. it just meant that teams were settled for the start of the campaign. And I think people have overlooked or maybe forgotten how chaotic the first few weeks of the campaign are when you still have the transfers going on. And, And maybe this is a slightly kind of selfish journalistic perspective on this kind of thing but for example I remember being at an Arsenal Tottenham game in August 2013 I think it was the day before the transfer window closed and this is traditionally the biggest game for those two clubs in their calendar Arsenal won 1-0 Giroud scored the winner absolutely no one cared because Arsenal were about to sign Ozil uh, Spurs were about to sell Bale to Real Madrid I think they both happened in, in the next couple of days but the actual game just got completely overlooked with everyone just kind of treating it as, uh, you know, the precursor to a, you know, deadline day festival watching Sky Sports News. And it just seems sometimes increasingly people seem to think that footballers play football in order to make transfers rather than make transfers in order to actually play football. So I think it would just create a lot of chaos, instability amongst sides like let's say Watford and Wolves who depend on transfer business and, you know, tend to have to feed off scrap sometimes when when the big boys have had their you know, taking their best players away, I think it's a real disappointment. And I think the Premier League's been much better with, uh, you know, the transfer nonsense out of the way. It's amusing that the Premier League took this step in the hope that Europe's other major leagues would fall into step alongside it. And then after two two years of of just got to the point, it's like, oh, you're not, you're just going to stay. Okay, yeah, well, we'll we'll, we'll change it back then in that case. I agree with Michael, though. I think it's quite nice. It has been quite nice having all the transfers done before the football begins. Right. Um, Just getting all that nonsense out of the way. Frida, you're from Europe. Why do you insist on having this transfer deadline (laughs) staying open so long? Well, we don't in Sweden, so I can't really take any responsibility. But I have to say, I mean, I agree. um, But I have to say I really enjoy having a proper deadline day. There's something about it. I I still still like it. So why was it not proper... Well, you know, when England closed, oh, right. you know, earlier, it, it wasn't the same thing, just having, you know, just Spain English, and, right. and French, um, the French League and, and so on. It's nice to have all in the same, but I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I thought it was better one day finished all the business. Yeah, interesting well. that we went it alone, took back control of our transfer deadline day, but 18 months on a basically falling back into line with the rest of the continent. But the, the, the problem Maybe is... Maybe we should have believed harder in our transfer deadline day. You can like trace this through the years and it's kind of boring, but back in the day, the, the Spanish and Italian leagues used to start a lot later than our mm. league. So we started in... Well, a little bit, but we used to start in mid-August and sometimes they'd be kind of mid-September. Yeah. So their transfer deadline, even before we had one, was kind of the end of August. So actually they were used to their... You know, the transfer campaign ended, the league campaign started, and it's almost like now the leagues have shifted slightly closer together. Mm. Now their leagues have been brought forward, but they've still got this deadline. You know, the problem really is the fact that the leagues have started at different times. I think we should just kind of somehow manage to agree to do our business all at the same times, and it would benefit everyone. Or would it be a solution just to not have a window and, and leave the transfer market open? I mean, I wouldn't be in favour of that, but I, I do think the fact that there is a transfer deadline day just makes it just so chaotic whenever it is. If you could trade throughout the season, I don't think the the last few days of summer, well, obviously wouldn't be so frantic. Um, yeah, there's no easy solution, but I'm disappointed the Premier League has reverted to this old system personally. But then I think there's a further complication because... Uh. 
the final day of August here is a bank holiday. Right. So I believe it's going to be actually extended here to September the 1st. So it will actually right. close slightly later than in Europe, which uh, seems to slightly defeat will the Will they purpose. not do September the 1st as well? There hasn't been that suggestion yet. But, but that'd be ironic. But I think yeah. La-, La Liga closes later, doesn't it? Mm. Well, it's a conundrum, but luckily football's got some of its best people on it. So while they're sorting that out, let's hear now from Paddy Power talking to producer Ben with the odds on some uh, well various Premier League matters. Good morning, listeners. I hope you're having a wonderful Monday morning, as I am too. Now, I've got Lee Price on the line from Paddy Power, which means it's time to talk about odds. Lee, uh, no actual games for about a week, so let's talk a little bit more generally. Liverpool, can they do the treble this season? Yeah, well, I'd like to start by saying that if you're a Manchester United or Everton fan, you might do well to skip the next 15 seconds or so. Hey, I'm sure you normally do. No offence taken. But this is about to get pretty terrifying. Liverpool are going to win the Premier League. We know that. We're still offering odds on it, but not very good ones. They're one to a thousand to win the title. It's done. The other two competitions where it gets interesting-ish. For both the FA Cup and the Champions League, Jurgen Klopp's men are second favourites at 4-1 behind Man City, which means the chance of them winning the treble this season are just 14-1. to OK, and what about the markets for the Golden Boot? Hooray for a trophy that actually looks competitive, with at least six strikers genuinely with a shot. Although I'm not sure the Golden Boot really counts as a trophy, but hey, desperate times, desperate measures. Jamie Vardy tops the score and charts by a goal at the minute, but he's second in the bet in that 11 to 4. We're expecting Sergio Aguero to overhaul him with the Argentine 6 to 4 to win the Golden Boot. But could you really rule out a Liverpool player winning it? They're probably going to win everything this season, as just discussed. So they could be valuing Mohamed Salah, who's two goals behind Aguero and rated 4 to 1 to finish the season as Premier League top scorer as well as champion. And so with the title done and dusted, it's actually much more interesting at the other end of the table. Give us then the markets, please, on the bottom three. Yeah, Bournemouth, the big losers of the Premier League weekend, despite being just one of two teams to actually taste defeat. That's because they've dropped into the bottom three of our relegation betting market, now 11 to 10 to go down. They joined Norwich, who we wrote off a long time ago and are 1 to 16 to get relegated, and Aston Villa, who are also odds on to go back to the Championship at 5 to 6. There's three more teams in contention, we think, for relegation. West Ham, who are 5-4 to four to go down. Watford, who are 6-4. to four, And Brighton, 7-2. to two. Those three teams, and perhaps Bournemouth and Villa, are going to rotate a lot over the rest of the season. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18 only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. As we mentioned, there's a full programme in the Football League this midweek, so make sure you catch the Totally Football League show, which will be with you on Wednesday, because it's getting very dramatic at the top of the Championship there, and indeed the other divisions. There's also a full programme in the Scottish Premiership, and if you tune in to the Totally Scottish Football show, that's out first thing on Tuesday, they'll get you up to speed on what's happening. They're also out at the crack of dawn on Tuesdays, the Totally Football Show European Edition which is going to be extra busy. Alvaro, James, Rafa, Julian and myself will be in to discuss things like the Copa del Rey, where both Real Madrid and Barcelona crashed, and I'm using capitals there, out of the competition, out of the quarterfinals. Both got beaten by Basque sides. Crikey. Barcelona boss Kike Setien is under pressure in the Catalan capital after just six games in charge. Also... In the wide world of European football, Juve went and lost at Verona, which made things extremely interesting on Sunday evening in Serie A. Inter with a chance to pull level 
in the Milan derby and Lazio to move just one point behind and what's suddenly becoming an incredibly tense Serie A title race. Would they take the opportunity that Juve have given them? You can find out in Tuesday's Totally Football Show. There's absolutely no way you can find out in the meantime. So make sure you listen to Tuesday's uh, Totally Football Show. Uh, there'll be loads of other stuff in there as well. Bundesliga title race. How many goals did Erling Haaland get this weekend? The answer may surprise you. <laughs> Uh, and that kind of thing. Brilliant. And, uh, well, there you go. So so that was this three-game Premier League weekend on this inaugural mid-season players' break. I'm not sure that I'm massively in favour of it. Tom, Frida, I don't know how you feel about this. I don't mind this it. Staggered. Quite a nice little, have a, a little, you know, yeah. little quieter fortnight and then, you know, step things back up. I think it does everyone a bit of good to... You know, not watch a bit of football for a little while, and then. Although you know, ironically, all... The, the, the all the games that I mean, there was only four games, but or should have been four games, but they were all on TV. Yeah, I wonder how many people watched all of them, though. Yeah, that might have been the fixtures this weekend. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well did... I, I I hated. I must say. <laughs> did yeah. you, Frida? The only good thing about it is actually that I've been watching a lot of Spanish football. Okay. Uh, something that you know, when the Premier League is is on, it's almost impossible to actually watch uh, other leagues but uh, I've been enjoying Alex Isaks um, the Swedish Ibra yeah the Swedish Ibra yeah. um, and what he's doing in Real Sociedad right the sorry that's uh, I think what Marker was it Marker dubbed him that after his exploits in the Copa del Rey and they they actually put he's the Swedish Latin and then yeah. you know somebody pointed out Latin's kind of Swedish himself but yeah yeah I, I, I think we we had it before but he's he's so different to Slatan in like you know his personality and, and so on so I don't think we look at him as the okay. new Slatan. Well, well just to finish off tell us a little bit more uh, about him because he had a huge game against Real Madrid and then in the derby again today scored and I think assisted. Yeah he, he did uh, he's been brilliant um, the last couple of weeks and um, he's actually been doing a great season in, in Real Sociedad um, came there from Dortmund um, obviously he, he came to Dortmund back in January 2017, I think it was, uh, for a record fee uh, from AIK. Um, didn't turn out so well. I mean, he was very young when he, when he went there. Um, but then he, he went on a loan spell to Willem II um, a year ago, scored many goals, which earned him this move to Real Sociedad and now he's really taking off which is really nice to see. He's, he's only 20 years old I think. Yeah he's, he's really young still. <laughs> he's, he's been in the game for so long it right. seems because uh, he got his breakthrough back in 2016 um, and obviously being very young back then so that's I think that's why the connection between Slatan has you know right. it, it's quite obvious um, and also the, the fact that he, he went for a record fee from the Swedish league. Slatan uh, was obviously like um, the record um, the record player before that. So yeah, it's exciting for him. Exciting for Sweden as well, you know, with the Euros coming up and, and so on. Excellent. Frida, thank you so much for that. Thanks for being with us today and look forward to you dropping by again soon. Tom Williams, thanks for coming along. And you, Mr. Michael Cox... Uh, loads of content from you both, I'm sure, uh, in the days to come on The Athletic and ESPN. Are you working on anything in particular right now, Michael? Well, with the uh, winter break, kind of looking forward to some Champions League and getting some kind of content right. up ahead of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Week after next, looking it's back. To it. yeah. And Tom? Yeah, similar. Top secret Champions League themed content. <laughs> Brilliant. All Watch right. this space. 
looking forward to that listener do hope you have a super week as we mentioned there's loads of shows uh, to ease your way through it and we'll be back with a regular Totally Football Show on Thursday as well so from all of us here for now it's goodbye you've been listening to the Totally Football Show a Muddy Knees Media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Hello, I'm Emma. And I'm Jeffers. And we're the Series Linked Podcast. Subscribe to our channel for all of the biggest TV interviews. And to stay on top of all the latest telly. It said Gervais sometimes fluffs his lines. Like I'd have left them in. It's a stunning place to shoot. I like put something up on Instagram and there's somebody a post going, oh, you, look at you, lazy eyed, you're ugly, aren't you? And on the way in upcoming episodes, we speak to Imelda Staunton, David Baddiel, Carl Pilkington, and many more. Just search for Series Linked. That's Series Linked. Muddy News Media.